inconsistency or the state of being inconsistent can be very confusing and conflicting. Perhaps never more so than when it comes to matters of faith. And as you may recall, this passage deals with a strange inconsistency. It deals with the inconsistency of a person or persons who profess to believe Christ without really believing Christ. With the person or persons who profess faith in Christ without any intent to follow Christ. We read in verse 30 that many people believed in Jesus. And in verse 31, Jesus begins to speak specifically to those who believed. So it seems that Jesus found it very, very important to clarify the nature of true faith. Very, very important to, um, to bring their inconsistency to bear. This chapter is marked by conflict, as you know, and contrast. There is the ongoing conflict between Jesus and some Jewish authorities. It is really a religious conflict at its core, one between belief and unbelief, between true and false faith. Jesus is teaching about faith, about true faith in God, and he's contrasting true faith with false superficial faith, he's urging the former, and he's exposing the latter. Truth is a key theme in this chapter. The words truth, or true, or truly, are used repeatedly throughout this chapter. In verses 12 through 20, Jesus bears testimony to the truth, in that he has come from heaven as one sent by God and is in fact one with God. That is, he is of, of the same divine nature as God. In verses 21 through 30, Jesus presents the truth of their fallen state before God in that their sins brought them, even as our sins bring us death and separation from God. In verses 31 through 36, which we considered last week, Jesus emphasizes the truth that apart from faith in Christ, we are enslaved by sin. And yet by the grace of God, through the gift of the Son of God, we can be freed from sin's bondage. We can be freed from sin's penalty and power. Yes, by God's grace, we can be freed, he says, freed to follow Christ, for if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now another key word here, or another key here, is the word Father. The word Father is used 20 times in this chapter. This is a relational word, obviously. 
It speaks of relationship. It speaks of close relationship. The relationship between a father and his child, between a child and his or her father. More to the point, Jesus is stressing a heavenly relationship, a spiritual relationship, a loving, eternal relationship between God and those who are children of God. And so the question they were facing is perhaps the same question we face this morning. It's a question of faith, true faith, and it concerns your eternal relationship with God. Here's the point, or at least my attempt to capture the point. True faith in Christ brings true friendship with God in the family of God as a child of God. True faith in Christ brings true friendship with God in the family of God as a child of God. And here's what I want you to consider as we walk through this text together. First, are you in relationship with God this morning? I'm really asking you to be asking yourself as we walk through this text together, am I in relationship with God? And if so, how's it going? What's the state of my relationship with God? And then I want to ask you to be on the look to anticipate that God has something to say specifically to you. And so, what will be your takeaway? from our time in this passage this morning. I want you to be looking for that. How does this passage, how does what Jesus teach here, how does it encourage you toward a fuller, more personal interaction with God as your heavenly Father? Sadly, the Jews in this passage were greatly bothered by what Jesus said. So much so that by the end of the chapter, literally, they are picking up rocks in the attempt to stone him to death. They assumed that God was already their heavenly father, even that Abraham was their spiritual father, but they were wrong on both counts. And I just hope that isn't us today. When it comes to matters of true and abiding faith, please hear this, we cannot afford to be wrong. 
They assumed that God was already their heavenly father. Even that Abraham was their spiritual father and they were wrong on both counts. Well, the first mention of Abraham in this chapter is in verse 33. Jesus begins telling the Jews about their spiritual bondage to which they reply, we are offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. In verse 37, Jesus agrees that they are indeed Abraham's offspring, but in verse 39, he clearly implies that they are not his children. Although they were descendants of Abraham in the natural, biological sense, they had no relation with Abraham spiritually with regard to his faith in God. That's the contrast here. In these verses, 37 through 40, Jesus contrasts He contrasts the the natural with the spiritual. He's distinguishing between being descendants of Abraham and being children of Abraham. Known as the father of faith, Abraham first appears in the Bible at the end of Genesis 11, and the account of his faith in God unfolds from chapters 12 through 25. It was Abraham, remember, first known as Abram, whom God called to be the founding father of his chosen people, the Jews. It was Abraham through whom God would bless all the families of the earth, both Jew and non-Jew. That was God's promise to him. It was Abraham who heard from God and responded by faith in God. Now, Abraham's faith was not a perfect faith. He still sinned on occasion. We have record of that. But it was true faith and that his life was generally characterized by trust in God and in God's promises and by obedience to God and God's word. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul points to Abraham's faith as evidence that he was counted righteous before God. The author of Hebrews presents Abraham as an example of someone who obeyed God by faith. Someone we should admire and look up to and follow his example. James, in similar fashion, states that Abraham's faith was proven by his obedience to God. You see, for Abraham, there was consistency. There was consistency between his faith in God and his obedience to God. Abraham was revered by the Jews, and he still is. And yet Jesus is saying that to be Abraham's offspring does not mean that his faith was automatically theirs. His faith was not credited to their account. It was not enough simply to be associated with Abraham or a descendant of Abraham 
that didn't give them inside access to God. And I think there's a lesson for us here. If nothing else, I think this can be a little bit of a wake-up call for us to remember that cultural Christianity can be very dangerous to genuine faith in that it can dupe us into believing we are Christians without ever having to deal personally with Christ. Listen, even our heritage, like theirs, can become an unintended obstacle to faith if we're not careful. Let me be frank here. As Americans, particularly Christian Americans, we can place too much weight in the faith of our founding fathers. Because I think that it's possible to herald the faith of our founding fathers without exercising faith in God ourselves. In our homes, Is it not possible that our children can grow up in Christian families without ever having to express faith in Christ on their own? Frankly, that's probably, probably, it's probably my biggest fear. That my own children being surrounded in a Christian environment would settle for superficial, second-hand faith. That they'd settle for cultural Christianity without ever coming to Christ themselves. Yes, yes, you are descendants of Abraham biologically, but no, let's be very clear, you are not children of Abraham spiritually. That's what Jesus is stressing here. 
You see, Abraham believed God. He believed that what God told him was true, and he obeyed, he trusted God, he trusted in God's provision and in God's promises, but you, he said, you deny the truth of God, and you deny me, the Son of God. In fact, you're seeking to kill me. You're not like Abraham at all. You may be descendants, yes, but you're not his children. Not when it comes to faith in God. You see, true faith bears the fruit of faith. We cannot live off the faith of founding fathers or even the faith of our own parents. Absolutely, absolutely, we can be blessed by it. And we are. We can be tremendously blessed by a godly heritage and by the example of godly parents, by the testimony of their faith, by the, by the, by the road they've paved before us. Absolutely. But we cannot live off their faith. And so I just have a word here, if I could just speak specifically to, to, to the children, but really I'm talking about the children of all ages. I'm, I'm not just talking about young kids. Certainly I am talking to young children, but I'm talking to, to children of all ages. If I could just speak to you from the heart, your parents who trust God, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents are praying that you would come to trust him yourself. They are praying for you over and over and over and over. They are asking God. They are standing in the gap on your behalf and they are pleading with God to be gracious and merciful and to change your heart and life and that you would be soft and supple to the things of God and that you would come to see the glory of Christ and that you would wrap your arms around Him and that you, their faith would become yours. waste this opportunity God has given you, placing you in a, in a godly home, a Christian home, surrounding you with godly influence. They're praying over and over and over again. They're praying for you and your faith. the fruit of faith would be born in your life and be a blessing to you and to those around you. Don't make the mistake these people were making. Listen to me. These people to whom Jesus was speaking were religious people in a religious culture 
claiming kinship with Father Abraham and faith with God, and yet there was this glaring inconsistency between who they professed to be and who they actually were. The faith that characterized Abraham did not characterize them. Now, if Abraham was not their father, who was? Jesus says to them in verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And again he says in verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. So who's he talking about exactly? Which father? And of course the answer becomes crystal clear in verse 44. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies Talk about telling it like it is. I just can't help but, but try to imagine the scene. I mean, in one breath, they're puffing out their chests and patting their back. We are, we are children of Abraham. We have one father, even God. The next moment, Jesus looking him square in the eye, and he's saying, no, God's not your father. Abraham's not your father. The devil's your father. Twice, Jesus said they were, they were seeking to kill him, and then he told them why. Because they were of the devil, who himself is a murderer. He repeatedly told them the truth, the very truth of God. Uh, on more than one occasion, he's saying, truly, truly, I say to you. I don't know, but I, I picture him like I do. I picture him kind of bending over, like pleading almost, truly, truly, I'm saying to you. But they refused the truth, and again he told them why, because they were of the devil who does not stand in truth. So rather than being like Abraham who trusted God, they were like Satan who opposes God. And so by the way, let's be very clear. Satan is very real. Satan is very real. He's not just an impersonal, mystical force of evil. Jesus uses the personal pronouns he and him when describing the devil. You know this, but, but can, we just, 
Can we just say this? Certainly he is not some comic book-like character in red tights with horns and a pointed tail and a pitchfork in hand. Listen, there is nothing funny about him. There's nothing fun-loving He is the father of all who reject or ignore God. He's a fallen angel who rebelled against God. He's not God's equal. He is not God's equal. God is sovereign and superior by far, and the devil himself is under divine judgment, and yet Satan's schemes of ways to oppose God. And, and hear this, one such scheme is to distract people from God's truth by luring them away with what's false. So think with me for a moment. Think of all the religious people today in places all over the world, people like these to whom Jesus was speaking, people who claim to follow God and yet remain far from God, even opposed to God. Satan knows that only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ can a, can a person be saved from spiritual death. Only the gospel of Christ provides for eternal relationship with God. So what does he do? He offers false religion in place of true relationship because it fools people into believing that they're right with God when in reality they are not. Do you realize that religion is on the rise today? I think, particularly among young people, by the way, I think... Now, this isn't saying much, granted, but, but I think people are more open to religion today than in my 42-year lifetime. And yet, strangely, we seem to be getting more religious and less religious at the same time. According to the New York Times, more students are taking classes in religion, more are majoring in religion, more campus learning communities are being formed where students and professors gather to discuss religion. A 2004 study on the spiritual life of college students revealed that more than two-thirds of the uh, 112,000 freshmen surveyed, more than two-thirds of them said they prayed. Almost 80% of them said they believed in God. In fact, one Harvard professor who'd been with the university for nearly four decades told the Times, there's probably more active religious life now than there's been in the last hundred years. Do you realize that religion cannot save you? 
Religion cannot fix what's broken in your soul. Religion cannot free you from your bondage to sin and death. Religion cannot bring life everlasting. Religion itself cannot save you. All your religious acts, uh, regardless of how well-intentioned, all your religious acts, your prayers and your many good works by themselves can never bring you to God. True, Christianity itself is a religion. But unlike every other religion, each of them false, at the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, whom God has sent in love to seek and to save the lost. In love, Jesus seeks and he saves fallen people, lost and dying sinners like us. This is made possible because Jesus himself innocently died in our place while bearing our sins and he rose from the dead and brings new life to all who place their trust in him. Jesus saves. True Christianity will always lead you to Christ. And I think by speaking these hard truths, Jesus was essentially calling the Jews in this passage to repent. He's calling them to turn from the falsehood of their religion and enter into relationship with himself. But rather than trust him, they oppose him. Rather than fall before him in worship, they fell prey to Satan's schemes. They worshiped a false God in a sense, not the God of Abraham. Certainly not. And thus they were shown. They were shown to be children of the devil rather than children of God. How then does Jesus describe the children of God? I mean, that's his goal, right? I mean, I have to believe his goal is he's, that he's teaching about true faith because he desires that people become true children of God. So in this passage, how does he describe the children of God? First, Notice that he says that those who are children of God hear his word. He says it both, or he puts it both negatively and positively. Negatively, he says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And again in verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear 
my word. And then he puts it positively in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And again, verse 47, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. It's not just that we hear from God, but that we heed what we hear. That's the emphasis. That's what abiding in Christ's word entails. That's what it means to allow his word to have a place in your life. It means listening and learning and living according to the truth of the word of God. It means that when God speaks, we don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. No, the true child of God wants to hear his word. The child of God desires to live by its truth. Why is this? Because the child of God truly loves God. Or more to the point, the follower of Christ truly loves Christ. Look at what he says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I'm right here. I'm right here. came from God. I'm the Son of God. I'm standing right before your very eyes. Don't tell me you love God. God is your Father, because if God were your Father, you would love me. In other words, Jesus states that inclusion into God's family as God's child is marked by a prevailing personal love for Christ. Dear East Parkway, that's what we want to be known for. The one simple mark that's present in every true Christian is a personal, prevailing love for Jesus Christ. And when this is the case, our obedience to Christ and to His Word is not mere obligation as if following Jesus were a chore. No, our obedience to Christ 
when this is the case, our obedience to Christ flows from a wellspring of love for Christ, for who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. It's impossible to love God and be a child of God without loving Jesus. And so I think it's important. This will be repetitive for many of you, but I think it's important to ask the question, how then does one become a child of God? Or... Maybe I could phrase the question this way. How does a person demonstrate a personal love for Jesus, at least initially? And the answer that is by embracing Christ yourself. by receiving Jesus yourself. You become a child of God by God's grace through personal faith in Jesus Christ. God's grace is revealed even in the fact, listen, even in the fact that that we can hear His word. That's grace. The very fact that we have the gospel and can respond to it. God's grace. God is being gracious to us even in the fact that you are here this morning. And you're sitting under the teaching of His word. Faith itself is a gift from God. And yet by God's design, our response to His grace or our acceptance of his gift is essential to becoming, a, to becoming his child. The Apostle John said as much back in chapter 1, you may remember back in chapter 1 in a paragraph that in many ways encapsulates this, this entire interaction here in chapter 8. The Apostle John speaks of Jesus and our response to Jesus when he says the truth the true light. Remember, this, this whole context is Jesus' declaration is the light of the world. And way back in chapter 1, John said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. Does this not sound like this chapter? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, but, but to all, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but children born of God. 
take hold. Take hold of God's gift. And entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who loves you, gave himself for you, can free you from bondage to sin and death, reconcile you to God, bring you into the family of God forever. So whose child are you? Some of you asked me before the service about my choice of sermon titles. Whose child are you? Like the Jews with Abraham, are you trying to live off the faith of another without coming to Christ yourself? Or are you more like the child of the devil? Are you more like a child of the devil in that you outright ignore or oppose Christ? Or are you a true child of God who's taken hold of Christ and embraced him personally as Savior and Lord. Remember what I asked at the very beginning. Are you in relationship with God this morning? And if so, how's it going? What's your takeaway from what Jesus has taught? What he has taught us this morning through this passage. Whatever it is, may it flow from a wellspring of love for him. For true faith in Christ, true love for Christ, brings true friendship with God in the family of God as a child of God. God help us. Amen. Yes, God, may you help us indeed to... Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to not too quickly forget your word. And uh, Lord, I love the fellowship after church and... uh, I love hearing the many conversations and I love engaging in conversation myself. And, and I know that, that we often have plans for the afternoon and evening and we just want to get about our day. And, and yet I pray that you would help us today to be, just to be, to, to not be too quick 
to move along. Continue to impress your truth upon our hearts. Draw us, Father, draw us. May the Holy Spirit himself Open our blind eyes. Bring conviction where necessary. And lead us to Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen.